0: I have a question, as Christians, how do we respond to the pressures of seeking to follow Jesus? We've seen over and over in First Peter, there will be pressures, right? We will, seeking to follow Jesus as exiles in this city, in our community, seeking to say, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to honor God with my life, there will be pressures. We face temptations, we face our own sinful nature, we face, as we're going to read in a minute, an adversary, the devil that is against us, that wants to devour. We face suffering, we face things like being mocked and marginalized, all of these things. And so the goal of the book of 1 Peter is to remind us of who we truly are in Jesus. If you go back to chapter one, that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey guys, remember, remember you are rescued and saved. You have a living hope. You have eternal life through Jesus. So the goal is to remind us of that so that when the pressure comes, people see Jesus in us. It's a simple analogy, maybe you've heard it before, but if you get a sponge and you fill it with water and you squeeze it, water comes out, right? Um, if it was me, like if I was the sponge and I was squeezed that way, probably coffee would just like be everywhere, flowing everywhere, It'd be like, oh, okay. Um, but it's, it's simple, like it's that simple truth of when the pressure comes, what is truly inside of us will be revealed, will come out we face a choice, as Christians, we face a choice when we face the pressure of following Jesus in this world. This is kind of kind of be our, our main thing this morning. It's this. When the pressure comes, will we live in the way of the gospel or will we live in the way of the world? We're going to look at and kind of compare and contrast all morning as we go through this sermon. So we continue in 1 Peter, the series called Exiles. This letter was written to Christians who Peter refers to as exiles. Remember, we're talking about exiles are temporary residents living in this world, knowing that's not our true home. Heaven is. And so these Christians, much like us, were facing social, cultural marginalization as a result of their faith in Christ. Here's the deal for us sitting here today, living, in, living as a Christian in Montreal is not easy. There are pressures, there are distractions, there are temptations surrounding us. And the book of 1 Peter helps us know how to faithfully follow Jesus in a place like Montreal or any other place that you live that has its pressures. But for us, it shows us how to follow Jesus in this place. We're going to read 1 Peter 5 this morning, and this chapter is filled with closing encouragements for exiles. Okay, I don't know, remember the last time you wrote a letter, maybe, you, you, you write the, dear so-and-so, I hope you're doing well, blah, 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 then you write what you want to write, and then you get to the end, Dylan's shaking his head, which means I think he hasn't written a letter in... I, I don't know, but but you, so an email, a text, I don't know. When you get to the end, and you might you might kind of like you know in closing, and you kind of reiterate some things. It's a little bit of what Peter is doing here. He's kind of rehashing some things he's already said maybe it's more likely, you know, if Abby and I are to go, um, you know, our oldest is old enough now to stay home with the other kids for, for brief things. And so if we, like, go somewhere for a couple hours, we remind over and over, okay, remember, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da do not do this, do this, you know, it's like, it's, so Peter's giving these closing encouragements. And many of the things that Peter has already written, he re- reiterates here. So let's read our passage. Then we're going to look at seven encouragements from this chapter. Yes, you heard me right. There are seven points to the sermon, but don't worry. Many of them are short, right? So hang with me. First Peter chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen and then Peter's sign off of his letter he says by Silvanus a faithful brother as I regard him I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray again this morning. God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you open our eyes to understand what you are saying through your word? Lord, we humble ourselves this morning and we ask that we would listen and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main idea this morning that we're going to see and, and again, kind of compare and contrast is in the pressures of exile, we can live in the way of the gospel or the way of the world. Let me unpack that a little bit. To live in the way of the gospel is to live our lives for Jesus as a result of being changed by Jesus, basically doing things according to God's way, according to the truth of the gospel. The way of the world, then, is doing things our own way. Either trying to get to God by our own effort or good works or to run from God and doing whatever we feel like doing. Like the way of the world is me first, get ahead, do what feels good, and stay comfortable. Like that's, that's the way of the world. So as Peter writes to these believers, he desires to see them live in the way of the gospel rather than the way of the world. And just to clarify, when we talk about the gospel, that word means good news. And it's important for anyone, when we first come to Christ, we must believe and accept God's work, the gospel, in our lives and put our faith in Jesus. But then the gospel is also a way of living. It is saying, I'm living according to who God is, not my own effort. I'm living according to the fact that Christ has accomplished everything, not me trying to earn something or prove something. So it becomes kind of a a pathway in which we walk, living according to the gospel. So we're going to jump right in. Seven encouragements for Christians living in exile Some of these might seem a little disjointed, but we're gonna tie them together. And all through, what I want you to see through every one of these points is that Peter is basically showing them here's the way to live in the gospel, but you could also live a different way according to the world. So we wanna look at how these things tie together. First point is this, leaders lead well. Leaders, specifically here in spiritual leadership, pastors, elders, leaders have the potential for great good, or great harm spiritual leadership is a good and glorious thing and it's a very dangerous thing as well and there are sadly countless examples of pastors who have misused scripture who have lived for themselves who have been hypocritical who have abused people either spiritually emotionally or physically or whatever and maybe some of you in this room have experienced experienced something like that in the past and if so i'm so sorry because that is not jesus and that is not the gospel but in our broken world it happens and it comes and so let's look at what does spiritual leadership look like in light of the gospel you think about this as a pastor like in the same way that a surgeon could do great good or great harm with a scalpel so can a pastor so it's a serious thing. It's an important thing. And so Peter starts this chapter by addressing the leaders of the church in verses one through four. He says, "I exhort the elders. That word "exhort means, I implore you. I urge you." Elder there here, here means similar there's like a, these combinations of words in the New Testament. It means church leader, administrator, pastor, shepherd, overseer. These are all kind of synonymous in the use of this word doesn't necessarily mean someone who's literally physically old. It means someone who has spiritual leadership in the church. So he says, I exhort the elders. Peter says, elders, here's what I want you to do in verse 1. And then he kind of, he says, so I exhort the elders among you. And Peter says, hey, I'm a fellow elder. I'm right there with you. And then Peter reminds us, he says, I was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus. And I share in the same things that you do. But the message that he gives to them, and he says, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. How? And he gives three ways. He says, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. What's he saying? He's saying, lead. Do your job. Exercise oversight. This is the role. This is the purpose. And to use the use of shepherd here is no mistake. It gives us the picture of a shepherd leading, nurturing, and protecting a flock of sheep. The message that Peter's trying to say is that a pastor should not not lead right? You like the double negative, right? If so, if he's not leading, if he's not exercising oversight, he is not fulfilling his role, and he's leaving the flock in spiritual danger. And Peter says you're to do this willingly, not as a chore, not with complaining, but willingly, saying for a pastor to say, hey, I believe that God has called me to this to serve, and I'm gonna do it willingly. Second thing he says, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, right? If a pastor is trying to get rich rather than shepherd the flock, there's a problem. Pastoring is a joy, and the goal is not financial gain or popularity or Instagram followers, right? The role of the pastor is to joyfully and eagerly lead people spiritually. So, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then, thirdly, he says, Shepherd your flock, not domineering, but be an example. A shepherd is gentle. A shepherd guides sheep towards food and water and away from danger. A shepherd does not beat sheep into doing what he wants. I've never literally been a shepherd with real sheep, but they don't beat their sheep, right? Goats, maybe, I don't know, but sheep? <laughs> Goats are weird, man. Um, that's not in my notes. A shepherd does not not beat sheep into doing what he wants. Here's the thing a pastor who is domineering is not an example of Jesus. He's trying to control, to manipulate, to get his own way, and this is wrong. And so those in spiritual leadership are to be an example, an example of Jesus, an example of humility, of kindness, of serving, an example of repentance right? Pastors should lead the way in saying, hey, I failed. God, have mercy on me. I confess I need Jesus, an example in the way of Jesus. So here's what I would say, Renaissance, in this church or in any other church, if the leaders are not leading in this way, they are in sin and need to repent or leave. And if they don't leave, you should leave, Look at verse 4, it kind of sheds some more light on this. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What Peter is saying is here is, if you are an elder, if you are a leader, you are under the authority of Jesus. He is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church. I'm not the pastor of this church, Jesus is. So pastors are to lead with humility under the authority of Jesus. And the verse 4 also gives an encouragement. It says, stay faithful. Lead like Jesus. There is eternal reward. So this obviously matters for the pastors and leaders of this church, but it also matters for you, right? If you move to a new place someday or you find a new church, ask yourself, are the leaders leading well? Are they leading in this way? But the deeper question here is about spiritual leadership. So, think about your own life. Many of you in this room are involved in discipling others. Maybe you help lead kids. You have spiritual influence over other people. How are you leading others? If you are discipling someone, is it as a shepherd? Is it gentle or is it controlling? In any kind of spiritual influence or leadership, we first come under the authority of Jesus. So we look, how, how can leaders lead in the way of the gospel or the way of the world? A pastor can live in the way of the gospel by humbling themselves under the authority of Jesus. But he can live outside of the gospel by leading out of his own flesh. We See the, contra- the contrast here that Peter gives. So leaders lead well. Secondly, clothe yourselves with humility. Our natural instinct is pride and rebellion, right? How many people, if someone says you can't do something, that's just more of a reason for you to want to do it, right? We're not all like that, but some of us are. It's our natural, if someone tells you you've done something wrong, we're like, well, no, I didn't, or it was because of this, right? Pride and rebellion, we are really good at that. Verses five and six are telling us that the church should be marked by humility. We've already talked about, you should have humble leaders, In verse 5, the second part, he says, says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So we should be humble towards leaders. And then in verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, so we're to be humble with one another. And then ultimately, we're to be humble before God. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. This phrase that says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a scary phrase. When we are prideful, when we are doing our own thing, God is opposed to us. And I don't want God to be opposed to me, the God of the universe. This is a serious thing. And actually, when you, you could go through the entire Bible and see this theme over and over and over of pride and humility, when there's humility, God is drawn to that. God can work with humility. When there's pride, God is opposed to pride. Pride. But he gives grace to the humble. What an incredible picture of the gospel. When we humble ourselves to say, God, I I can't fix myself, but Jesus, I put my faith in you. God gives grace to the humble. And so we are to show humility towards one another. Not trying to get ahead or one-up each other or look down on each other. And we are to show humility towards God. He says, First Peter, first Peter. His name is not first Peter. His name is Peter. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Again, this is serious stuff to say, who are we to think that we can raise ourselves up and puff ourselves up against the power of God? But he says, No, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because true humility starts when we recognize God for who he is and us for who we are. Broken, needy, small, and God is not. He is great and powerful. So Peter wrote this for a reason. Because these exiles, like you and I, are prone to pride. So the gospel cuts down pride. Because it shows us that we have earned nothing. So what in the world do we have to boast about? Every good thing we have is a gift from God. Every good thing in us is a result of the work of Jesus in us. We have nothing to boast about but to boast in Jesus. Jesus humbled himself becoming a servant so that you and I could be rescued out of our sin. So we live in the way of the gospel by living in humility before God and before others. But we live in the way of the world by living in rebellion and pride. So clothe yourselves in humility. The points as we go get shorter as we go, so stick with me. Third thing he says, he says, cast all your anxieties on God. And we sung that a moment ago, cast all your burdens now on him. Christ has defeated every sin. Here's the thing, you and I, we will face anxieties. What will you do with them? Now, I will say as a side note, we know, we all know like the, the, the like regular life anxieties, the things that come and like we try to control whatever. But I also know that there are struggles of anxiety that require other, like, they start with our understanding of the gospel, but they require someone else to help us process through these things. So um, I want you just to hear that. But as exiles, there will be suffering, cultural pressure, your own flesh, temptations, fear, insecurity, worry, instability. So what do we do when these things come in like a flood? Well, Peter says in verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Okay, that sounds like Peter is making a nice Instagram post, right? We've got a picture here we're going to see, right? of oh, okay, thank you, Peter. I'm going to go sit on a dock and look out at the water and cast all my anxieties on God, right? Um, this, this, this phrase, um, I think, has become such a, like, almost, like, inspirational Bible quote, right? It's true. It's, it's there, right? But, but we, we sometimes see it and this, like, okay, just let go and let God. Okay, Peter, you know, what are we talking about? How, you know? You, you don't know what these anxieties feel like. How can I just, like, cast it away? But then the verse continues and says, because he cares for you. God loves you. Peter, this is nice, but it still doesn't feel like it quite impacts my real life. It still feels like a nice quote on Instagram or on a poster in a church basement, right? What is going on here? Well, let's dig into it a little bit more because I don't want it to be a nice quote for us this morning. It is a life-giving truth from Scripture, when we try to manage and control our own lives, to keep all of this plates spinning, to grit our teeth and try to get through the hard stuff, when we do that, what are we doing? Are we trusting God? Are we letting him be in control? No, we're not. We're trying to manage it. So, casting all our anxieties on him It has nothing to do with the situation. It doesn't change the situation, but what happens is it changes our heart. It it comes down to what do we believe about God? Do we believe that he is God and he is in control, or do we not? And we might say we believe it, but we practically, we, we forget it, and we don't live it out. And casting our anxieties on him, it moves us from that feeling of panic because we are not in control, to a feeling of peace in our hearts because we are recognizing that God is truly in control. And that is the key to say, am I in control or is God? And our honest, deep down answer to that question will determine what we do with our anxieties. Personally, I'm not a stranger to this. One example of this is I face the anxieties of raising kids in this city where everything wants to shape them to be like the world and there have been times when I have let that fear for my kids and their safety and their spiritual growth I've let it consume me and I overthink it does anybody overthink I no, don't think too hard about raising your hand right <laughs> like I don't know do I uh, like I overthink it and I try to make sure that I have a sense of control but I, but I don't And it's only when I stop and say, I'm not in control, but God, you are. And God, you love my kids more than I do. So for me, that's what it looks like to cast my anxieties on the Lord. We can take our cares and our worries and our anxieties, and we're going to say, God, God, these are going to have to be your problem. They're too much for me, but they're not too much for you. So for my kids that are in the room, I'm not saying you're a problem, I'm saying my anxieties are a problem. (laughs) God, these are going to have to be your problem. They're they're too much for me, but they're not too much for you. And so maybe if you don't have kids this morning, if you have kids, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, think about the stresses, the anxieties of your job, your finances, your relationships. And when the anxieties come, we can cast them on the Lord, saying, God, these are going to have to be your problem. They're too much for me, but they're not too much for you. And then we see this phrase, because he cares for you. This isn't just Peter saying, hey, remember, God loves you. It is a deep truth that fills us with hope and encouragement that the God of the universe sees you. He cares for you. Your concerns are his concerns. He cares for you. So Peter tells these exiles, the pressure's going to be there. And when you feel it weighing you down, cast those anxieties on me because you can't carry them on your own. So we live in the way of the gospel when we recognize that God is in control. We live in the way of the world when we try to control and manage things on our own. The fourth thing that Peter writes to encourage is this, stay spiritually awake. I didn't say woke. (laughs) I said awake. (laughs) We naturally drift to spiritual slumber and spiritual sloppiness, right? All of us. We naturally drift in that way. And verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Peter uses this phrase sober-minded three times in First Peter. So we've already talked about it some, but it is a call to these exiles to be self-controlled and not to live either literally drunk. Right? He says, be sober-minded, so he's like, say, don't literally be drunk. But also, don't be metaphorically drunk on this world, just so caught up in what everything, everything's going on around you. He says, be watchful, which means be on the alert, be awake. If you're driving at night, you have to stay awake and alert, right? Literally keeping your eyes on the task at hand. And that's the message here to exiles, is keep Awake, stay alert, stay focused on who God is, what he's doing. Because if you take your eyes off of that, you're going to get sucked into everything that's going on around you. So the message here to exiles is, not to, is to not let the pleasures and comfort of life lull you to sleep spiritually. Because it will. It will for us as well. We live in the way of the gospel when we are spiritually awake and alert, fixing our eyes on Jesus and on the mission that he has called us to. And we live in the way of the world when we grow spiritually lazy, caught up in everything else but Jesus. So Peter is reminding them and encouraging them, hey, stay awake, stay alert, stay focused. But he goes on to tell us a little bit more of why. He says, your adversary, in verse eight, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour our next point is resist the devil the scripture reminds us we as christians we have a real adversary and i'm not going to go into an entire theology on satan and the devil but the truth is we have there is a spiritual realm and we have a real adversary The enemy, Satan, wants to devour us, to swallow us up like a lion. If you've ever watched a nature show, lions don't eat daintily, right? They devour. (laughs) So stay spiritually, as Peter is telling them this, he's saying, hey, stay spiritually awake so that you can resist the devil, so that you can stand firm. The devil will tempt, will attack, will seek to make us fruitless and useless as Christians. He wants to distract, discourage, and devour. But Peter says resist the devil. So how do we do that? We resist him, he says, by standing firm in our faith, recognizing That he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And Jesus reminds us of that as well. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So by believing, how do we do this? How do we resist? We do it by believing the truth of God's word over the lies of the enemy. We stand firm in our faith by building our lives on Jesus and on the truth of God's word. When the enemy comes, he is the father of lies. He tells lies. He seeks to pull us away from Jesus. So we stand firm in our faith by saying, I know what the enemy is saying, but I know the truth of who God is. And I build my life and I stand firm in my faith. I I can't manufacture it. I can't fix everything, but my faith is in Jesus. And so we live in the way of the gospel by standing firm in our faith in Jesus, resisting the devil. We live in the way of the world by being swayed and distracted by the lies of the enemy. These kind of flow into one another. The next point is this, you are not alone. We naturally think, I'm the only one. I'm the only one with this problem, I'm the only one that's facing this, I'm the only one that has this struggle, uh, and, and some, we just feel that naturally. Then it kind of turns into like a pity party, like why do I have to be the only one, right? But we are not alone. And that's what Peter is trying to communicate here. He says, resist the devil, stand firm in your faith. But then the other way that we resist the devil is by knowing that other Christians in other places are facing suffering and attack as well. And you're like, okay, how does that help us? And yet it reminds us we're not alone. There is encouragement in knowing. The things that we face, there are people all over the world that face those things, people who are seeking to follow Jesus. Now, to be be true, truth is there are people all around the world facing so much more than we face and this reminds us to remember we are not alone in the following jesus there is encouragement in this and then so peter is saying hey remember You're facing the same kinds of suffering by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's important for us to remember that church is not just us in this room. There are churches all over this city. There are churches all over this world meeting today to lift up the name of Jesus, going through hard things, seeking to stay faithful. By God's grace, we get to be a small part of that. And there is joy in that. There is encouragement in that Peter says also in verse 13, this is a little strange, he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Again, he's reminding them they're not not alone. And there's, people have argued over how to interpret that, she who is at Babylon. Some people think it's code for the church in Rome, but it seems more likely that that's not what he means. He literally means the church that's in the city of Babylon that's gathering. He's saying, hey, there's this church in another place, sends their greetings, they're with you, they're reminding you, there's comfort, there's encouragement. So we don't face the enemy alone. We are a community of exiles bound together by Jesus, holding each other up and cheering each other on. We live in the way of the gospel by locking arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we live in the way of the world by isolating ourselves and living for ourselves and living in self-pity. We are not alone. Finally, the encouragement. Hang on to Jesus. I think what Peter's trying to communicate to these people and to us, he says, you're going to want to quit. Verse 10, he says, after you have suffered a little while, He's reminding them: there's pressures. You're gonna suffer. You're gonna want to quit. But verse ten: what does he say? After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal eternal glory in Christ, and I love this, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Have you ever gone to a store and you have like, hey, you know, like I need help with something and you know, you get to talk to like the actual boss, like the the person like, ooh, it's like the boss himself will come and help you out, right? Peter's saying, Christ himself will restore and establish you. But Peter's saying, you're gonna wanna quit. You're gonna wanna focus on what's right in front of you, but our hope is in heaven. And he's encouraging them, know this, after you have suffered a little while, which reminds us, Suffering is temporary. We have the hope of heaven. After you have suffered a little while, Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Hang on to Jesus. And then in verse 11, he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We don't use this word dominion a whole lot, but here's what it means. Power and might That these things are ascribed, are given to Jesus forever and ever. Another way of saying to him be the dominion is he is the King of Kings, ruling and reigning from now into eternity. He is Jesus. And Peter is saying, listen, Jesus has conquered the enemy. He has all power and authority. While the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, Jesus is the risen Savior, who Scripture calls the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. We live in the way of, God, of the gospel by clinging to Jesus and the strength that He gives. But we live in the way of the world by giving up and saying, "I can't. I can't be in this fight anymore." I just got to take care of me. I just got to do my own thing. I just got to be comfortable. Peter says, hang on to Jesus. As we close, in the pressures of exile, we can live in the way of the gospel or the way of the world. And Peter has given us seven different things here of ways to remind us, here's how you live in the way of the gospel. We can ask the question, okay, Peter, why? As we remember this whole series, this is kind of wrapping up this theme here of of exiles. We're going to continue into 2 Peter next week, but this is kind of a a closing to this point of the letter. Peter, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we live as exiles or that we follow Jesus or that we do these things? It's because of this. When we live in the way of the gospel, people will be attracted to the gospel in us, and God will be glorified. As Christians, as exiles, we have a purpose, not just to endure the struggle, not just to dig in and tough it out, but to represent Jesus to a broken world that is starving for the truth of the gospel. I had a conversation with someone yesterday who was, he was very honest with me about struggles he's been dealing with and facing and he's, he's, he's turning 40 soon And uh, he's like, this has made me think about a lot of things. And I'm like, yeah, I I get that, right? But it opened a door to be able to say, there's good news. There is hope. There is something that can satisfy our souls. There is something that can deal with the guilt and the shame in us. And it is Jesus. And he listened and he asked questions. And I don't know know what's going to come of it. But I know that he's searching for truth. People all around us are searching for truth. They are hungry to know something that's real, something that brings real peace and purpose and meaning. And as exiles, as Christians, when we follow Jesus, we can represent Jesus to the world around us that is hungry for truth. We think about the message of the gospel, the good news that Christ has given himself to pay the price for our sin. We remember what Peter says here. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this morning, our sin is rebellion against God. It's pride and rebellion, saying, I'm going to do it my own way. God is opposed to our sin Apart from Jesus, if you have not put your faith in Him, you are separated from Him. And to not put it lightly, He is opposed to you, to your sin. He loves you. He made you. He is opposed to your sin. But God has made a way that through Jesus, we can put our faith in Him. Jesus took our sin upon the cross. He died in our place. He rose again from the grave giving victory over death. And the only way to live in the way of the gospel is daily surrender to Jesus, to humble ourselves and say, I'm not in charge, but Jesus, I put my faith in you, that you forgive me and cleanse me. Church, by God's grace, may we live in the way of the gospel. And let's pray that many people would see Jesus in us and be drawn to him. We're going to sing here in a moment. And this morning, you may need to respond in some way, either just in your own heart, thinking through some of these questions. Am I living in the way of the gospel? Or am I doing it, trying to do it my own? Am I trying to control my own life? As you think through these things, or maybe this morning you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time to say, I, I've, I've been trying to figure it out. I've been searching for hope, for answers. It's in Christ that we find forgiveness and grace. We would love to talk with you about that. Let's close in prayer. We're gonna sing um, together and then we're gonna celebrate communion together this morning. Graham's gonna lead us in that in a few moments. As we do all of this, let's rest and ponder and think on the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the grace of Jesus towards us. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.